Yeah, hi, how you doing? It's Dawn from the show. Connie, are you still there? All right, listen, I just thought I'd tell you that there's a bomb in your house and it's going to blow in about five, four, three, two, one. gun can we go we all feel better in the dark we all feel better we all feel better in the dark in conclusion if you find yourself falling asleep having a dream child in the middle of a nightmare while you're trying to wake up when you're being chased by a guy with razors on his fingers and you don't know it's a new nightmare and then you got Jason he's got an axe got Kelly rolling she's not singing nightmare baby nightmare baby nightmare baby license to ill flow H-Y once upon a time on a Super Bowl night, two guys from BK brought the points to life. Gave you some previews and some laughs. Was it no big thing? No one thought it would last. Then one started growling at the mention of a chick. The other guy would lose it every time he got pissed. Next thing you know, they got a good fan base. So they said, what the hell? Let's continue to pace. No stone uncovered. They will take on a topic. Might bring on a guest. And together they rock it. Cause they're in like Flint. Two mices are cool. If you don't know the beautiful one, they'll take you to school. I'm talking about Tom, DJ, and Derek Ferguson. The best podcast out, hands down, it's set. So in the tub, in the car, if you're chilling in the park, welcome to another show of Better in the Dark. On the anniversary of the night they burn Lavinia Morley, many strange and sinister dreams are experienced. But are they dreams? Or are they the signs of the curse of the Crimson Altar? How are these wild parties and an antique dealer investigating witchcraft connected with this house of horrifying secrets? Back in touch with you. Go watch that movie. Right, Devin? Go watch that movie. <laughs> Direct from what is apparently becoming the rat capital of America. Yes, you actually would think so. <laughs> we actually had a rat that was trapped in our garbage can for two days. Because, to be honest with you, I wasn't going to mess with him. Oh, who wants to mess with a rat? The rat ate a hole in the back of my garbage can. I was talking with the owner of the store, Mr. Kim, and his assistant, Ajima, as we call her. You've met both of them by this point. And I was talking about how I didn't like going on the subways at night. Right. And I said, I hate these rats. They're the size of small dogs. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I think you're making that up. I'm like, no. I'll take pictures. You see these things. On the older subway lines in New York, you see, and they own the subway station. My father had a friend, and we're talking about the 70s. My father worked for transit. He said that in some cases, whenever they had to go to certain areas to do repairs, they actually had guys with guns that went along with them oh my because Lord. of the rats. Mm-hmm. The rats were so big and so aggressive down there. And no, folks, you have not joined Exterminators <laughs> Extra in progress. Should I have better in the dark? This is better ben in the dark. Ben and Willard. Yeah, you know, <laughs> so I'm considering what we're talking about. We you should... would think that the subject matter would be Ben and Willard. Willard. 
But no, it's our annual Obscure Movies episode, and I'm Derek Ferguson. And I'm Tom DJ. This is hands down the most popular episode of our year. Tom insists that you folks keep nagging us for it, which means that I gotta go out and I gotta bust my hump and I gotta find some movies that y'all never heard of. Usually by around November, because I know that we record this usually in the first recording session of the new year. Oh, yes, and Happy New Year to everybody out there, because we're recording this on January 25th. It's our first episode we're recording of the new year. So what did you do for your New Year's? Not a damn thing, because I was sick as a dog. That was when I had an ear infection. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, Patricia got the flu, so she was sick as a dog. I was trying to take care of her, and I thought I had caught the flu from her. And I went to the doctor, and he said, no, you don't have the flu. You've got a very bad ear infection. You've been walking around with this for a while. I had felt pretty punk, but I was still going about my daily. That's what I figured. I figured that it was a cold or the flu coming on. He said, no, it's a bad ear infection. You and I are the type of people, I think, we come from that generation where if it's not causing a limb to fall off, we're going to go about our day. Exactly. And I know some of y'all are going to get on me about this, but you people tell me, well, I stayed home for a week. Well, what's wrong with you? Well, I had a cold. You had a cold and you stayed home for a week? I can understand it now because I would rather people stay home than rather go to their jobs yeah. or go out and infect, and other, infect people. other people. So I understand it now. But yeah, back then, we were like that guy from that Monte Python movie. The guy kid, yeah. he was getting the limbs cut off. And, and the Black insisted, Knight. And he insisted there's nothing wrong with him. That's it. You it's know. just a flesh wound. From the generation me and Tom come from, unless you had a heart attack. And even people I knew when I was a kid, they'd have heart attacks. And in a week, they'd be back to work. Right. But that's another episode. Okay. Right now, we are going to talk about. Let's just say my New Year's Eve was a lot more colorful. Well, what did you do, Thomas? At the invitation of my dear friend Paul Cully, hi Paul, I went to join him and three friends of his, three female friends, and our mutual friend Rob in Astoria. Okay. Now, here's the thing. He sent the correct address to my cell phone and emailed me the wrong address. Paul and I have been doing this a lot. Every Saturday we try to do something new. Okay. He'll usually email me the address and I'll use Google Maps to plot out how to Plot-out. get there. Yeah. Write it down on a slip of paper and arrive there. Okay. So I used the email address address, which was wrong. So instead of going to 36th Avenue, I went to 36th Street, which is the middle of nowhere right next to the police department. So I know if I ever get in trouble in a story of where the police are. If nothing else. If nothing else. I don't want to, because there are people that might be embarrassed by this. I won't go into the whole story. Let's just say it was a very, very eventful time. Okay. But it was a fun time and... But why would they be embarrassed? What did they do, Thomas? There are people whose names I have not mentioned yet who got very, 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 very drunk. And? And did some very, 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 very foolish things. Again, and? We leave it at that because I don't want to embarrass them. That's what New Year's Eve is for. If there's one night of the year you're supposed to go out and make a total fool of yourself and get sloppy drunk, it's New Year's Eve. And you can get away with it as long as you're not violent. People give you a pet. That's why if you're going to get totally blitzed, do it on New Year's yeah. Eve. As long as you're not violent, people will give you a pass, whatever you do. Mm-hmm. They say, ah, it's New Year's Eve. And your birthday. People will do that. Yes. But I'm glad to hear that you went out. Yeah, we, no, the whole thing is it's all about not being the mole in the hole. And that's something I've been resolving to do lately. Left my own devices. You know me. I'll be at home all day on the... Yeah, yeah. Especially with all the stuff I've got going. But that's at the end of this episode we'll be talking about. Yeah, we just stayed home. Like yeah. We were sick as a dog. We watched Dick Clark. Two things I have to say. First off, it's kind of not the same without him in his little god box in the sky. It's not. It's habit because I've grown up right. as a kid. And you know, we've grown yeah. up watching Dick Clark. But it's not the same. Something else I noticed, maybe I'm being too sensitive about this. Did you notice a significant lack of, shall we say, faces of color mm. this year? Well, there was Psy. 
Sigh and Hammer. That was it. Sigh with that weird duck coat of his. Oh, my God. It was funny because, okay, we're at this restaurant. It's kind of like Asian fusion with our friends. They have Dick Clark on there. We're surrounded by a bunch of much younger people who are looking to get much drunker and smashed than us. In fact, had a complimentary bottle of champagne. Mm. And one of the, the people at the table next to us had a little balance accident that caused the champagne bottle to break all over my front. Oh, wow. Although I saved the doers. I'd never met the people who were the host of this party, right? Mm -hmm. And you and I are also from that generation where if you're going somewhere for the first time and you don't know these people, you bring them a gift. You bring a gift. Even though I don't drink, I always Mm. have on hand a couple of bottles of fine liquor. Okay. I picked out a bottle of Dewar's White Label. Wow, you do carry top shelf stuff. It was a gift from when I was doing the Comptroller's Ball. I did a job in his office and for a couple of years... After that, he gave a, a gala at the Puck Building, New Year's Eve Ball. That's where I got to meet Melvin Van Peebles. Oh, cool. Which was a great honor. Uh, and I'm jealous. I got to meet a lot of really cool people. And it was partially sponsored by Seagram's. Oh, okay. So every year, Seagram's gave us a gift bag. They gave out liquor like and, water. <laughs> and if it was a slow turnout because of the weather, us volunteers were asked to bring home five, six, and seven of these bags because mm. they didn't want all that fine liquor to go to waste. So, yeah. yeah. So I had some Dewar's White Label. Okay, this will work. Because it was like Dewar's, I got some Tanqueray, I've got some... And so when the guy did his big 180 into our table, I instinctively, because that was the gift, reached out and put my hand on the Dewar's to steady it. Good man. And that's when the champagne came shattering all over me. So So you smell like champagne all night long. You weren't the only one. I'm sure I wasn't. I didn't drink it first. That's the problem. Yeah, it kind of spoils the whole effect when you're not drinking it. Yeah. (laughs) We got to do some karaoke that night as well because the legend of the samurai must continue to be spread. You had a good New Year's Eve. Yeah, in fact, I'm going to be on the television because of my karaoke prowess. But we'll get to that later. Okay. Here we got six movies to get through. Do you want to do some listener mail first? Yeah. We got a backlog going back yeah, to fact. Yeah, we got a yeah. backlog, so listen. Let me do one or two, and we're going to start with our good friend Ian Wilson. And Ian Wilson says, Mrs. DJ and Ferguson. Oh, Lord. Greetings from merry old England. I'm delighted to hear my line about Andrew Garfield as referenced in your recent recap of The Amazing Spider-Man in episode 139. Normally I rely on over-exaggerating my Britishness for the purposes of adding humor to comic relief, so whenever I happen on a zinger, I am well chuffed. Such as in this letter. As I write this the second week of November, I'm glad to hear you guys came through Hurricane Sandy intact. I have yet to visit your great city, but it's on my bucket list of places to visit someday. When I don't live month to month, I'm extremely lucky that my part of the world rarely suffers natural disasters. If ever so, it's always heartbreaking to see the trial of destruction left by hurricanes, earthquakes, and tsunamis. Stay safe, fellas. Yeah, you just try saying the word fellas in my accent. Well, we just Well, did. he just tried. <laughs> Loving the banter as always, and I look forward to the somewhat wintry summer of speed. I trust you'll be covering the Keanu Reeves classic itself. Apologies, I've got his name wrong. Dread Media would have had me believe his name's Canu Reeves. Cheerio! Ian! So, what do you have to say to our good friend Ian? Nothing. Nothing? Okay. Although, now I was home during Hurricane Sandy, yeah. so I'm on my computer and I'm doing this. And I'm getting emails and people on Facebook are telling, oh man, are you okay? Do you need anything? Are you alright? Are you floating away? Are you this mm-hmm. and that? And I was, I'm okay. It wasn't until I turned on the news that I understood why people were so concerned. Because right. the news made it seem like we was getting Katrina. 
And actually where we were at here in right. Brooklyn and you over there in Queens, we got hit, but it was more like a bad storm. If you live in Red Hook, we got a fairway that's over there. They got hit so bad that they're not even going to rebuild that fairway. It's too much structural damage, right. but it's right by the water. Patricia's uncle who lived in Red Hook, he had to be evacuated. If you were near the water, it was bad. Staten Island got Katrina. Right. You oh, know. God, yeah. Yeah. Mr. Kim was without electricity for almost two weeks. Right. Ridgewood is on a level. It's kind of on an elevated area. But there was still, the day after the worst of it went out, I did go out. And I remember clearly there was one sign that had been blown off Mm -hmm. by the winds, but I found it three blocks further down Myrtle Avenue. Mm -hmm. And mind you folks, don't misunderstand me for a minute. I am not minimizing Mm -hmm. what happened. Yeah, there was Coney Island, Far Rockaway. They got hit. There were some. One of my customers, he's a dear, dear guy, a really nice guy. He came in about two or three weeks after. And I hadn't seen him around because before I got to know him, I used to call him the Latin suit man because he would Mm -hmm. always, cold weather, warm weather, whatever, he'd always have a full three piece suit on and sunglasses. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that he was probably coming from court all the time. He came by to buy some new shoes and he was explaining that he lived out in one of the the coastal areas. He lived out near Rockaway Beach and he was totally wiped out. And he had just received some aid, so he was just getting new shoes. He said, everything is going to have to rebuild my entire life mm-hmm. from the ground up. So, yeah, there was some terrible things. Yeah, we was, were lucky. But I'm just saying this because when I say this, people say, you're just minimizing it. No, there were some parts of the city that got really bad. But what I'm saying is that the news media tried to make it seem like all of New York was like that. Disaster area. And there were some parts that went relatively untouched. Right. Thank God I live in one of those areas. Mm-hmm. I never even lost my satellite service. And I've had right. snow storms and thunderstorms where it's been knocked out for yeah. like half a day. I think there were a couple of, because as you know, I don't have cable or right. satellite or anything. For about a couple of hours, there were a few of the stations mm-hmm. had been knocked off. So I had no signal on a couple of the stations, but mm-hmm. that was okay because all they were doing was, it's still raining. After a while, that's why I wasn't watching yeah. the news because, yeah, well, I can look, I can see it's raining and when you watch the news, all they were doing was just reiterating the same thing mm-hmm. over and over again. I didn't really need to because Patricia was upstairs with her grandmother who came and stayed with us because she mm-hmm. didn't want to be by herself. And they watched the news obsessively yeah. 24-7. I didn't. Uh, it's still raining outside. Yes, it is. Okay, well, let me go back to a movie. Then. Right. <laughs> what can I tell you? So, so, yes, thank you, Ian, for the kind words. Always And Ian is still doing on Earth2.net, our little family site, Shake and Blake. I think it's going to be coming up on the end of the series, though. I have no idea what he's got planned. It's kind of unusual. You would have thought that somebody would have thought about bringing back Blake 7. Once in a while, you hear mutters and murmurings and natterings and yeah. like nothing concrete. It kind of surprises me that they haven't brought that back yet. Well, Big Finish, the people that do the audio Doctor Who dramas, mm-hmm. they've done a couple of Blake 7 audio dramas mm-hmm. with some of the original voice actors, like right. Paul Darrow. What else is Avon going to be doing these days? Right. They did, I think it was three or four of them. So they're out there. There are people who are doing what I guess is the equivalent of Blake 7 fan fiction mm-hmm. out there. I don't know. I think it's one of these things, we'll get to that when we get to another episode we're going to be recording today. Uh, I think it was maybe just a thing of its time. Yeah. And it's no. one of these things where it's, I don't know if I would want to see a Blake 7 or an Earth 1999, which I guess would be called Earth 2099. Space 1999. Sorry, Space 1999. Done in the modern day without the original showrunner since now Jerry Anderson and Terry Nation are Mm -hmm. gone from this earth. Do we want to do one more piece of... Yeah, let's do one more. This is from Eric Bessler. And Eric says, two things. Thing number one. How do you not include Duel in a podcast about existential car chase movies? Yeah, I know it's Steven Spielberg, but it's actually pertinent to the theme. 
Of course, I would have listened to the podcast just because it covered Tulane Blacktop, and anything with Warren Oates is worth seeing. Thing number two, I have a really unique show idea. I know you're busy, so I'll keep it brief and give you the elevator speech. Too late. Alejandro Jodorowsky made a film called El Topo. In and of itself... It's a great piece. It's been called the first ever midnight movie in the very first acid western. There's enough about this film and the making of it to carry a podcast. However, his subsequent film, The Holy Mountain, goes even more insane and is also a must-see film. If only to sample something truly unique and expand your film palette. The really good show idea part comes in that there's a way to watch both these movies as one, which is how I think they were intended. In El Topo, when the gunfighter is betrayed at the bridge, stop the movie and put in The Holy Mountain, playing it from the beginning. I'm not going to tell you what minute mark to stop El Topo at because I want you to watch the film, not the minute marker. Not only that, but you'll know when it happens. The storyline and character arc will make perfect sense this way. Trust me on this one. Here's some interesting factoids that should pick your interest about these films otherwise. El Topo was said to be John Lennon's favorite film, which is why he produced The Holy Mountain. During the filming of The Holy Mountain, Jodorowsky hired a guru, which gave him acid every day. Isn't that, in our parlance, a dealer? Yeah. Jordawoski claims that he was the original director of Dune and that many of his props and creatures ended up in the Katina scene in Star Wars. Exploding toads and lizards. Several crap-your-pants moments, and Tom, you'll get to watch Derek's eyes pop out of his head at least once. It's like watching a film directed by a peyote-fueled Larry Cohen where the screenplay was written by a tequila-soaked Sam Peckinpah having a religious experience. Thanks for your time and for doing your podcast. I'm off to watch the original version of The Wicker Man. I've never seen it. Okay, first of all, the reason why we haven't done Duel yet is because we haven't gotten to it. We actually talked about Duel. I, I emailed him yeah. after the fact to explain that we did do Duel as one of our obscure horror movies. Right. We have done it. We haven't gotten to it yet as part of the Summer of Speed, but we've already talked about right. it. Matter of fact, I gushed about it at some length. Mm-hmm. And you went into Duel. your existentialist film school student explanation about what the film is really about. Right, exactly. I don't know if we're going to cover the movie again during the Summer of Speed, but... But maybe we will, maybe we won't. I've also written a review of it that you can find at the Ferguson Theater. And as far as El Topo goes, well, what makes you think I haven't seen it? If anybody's read any of my Sebastian Red mm-hmm. weird Western stories, and some people have asked me, have you ever seen El Topo? And I said, yeah. The imagery of that movie was with me while I was writing Sebastian Red. You may want to check out those Sebastian Red stories, which can be found in How the West Was Weird. Now, correct me if anthologies. Didn't Jodorowsky only do three films? El Topo, The Holy Mountain, and Santa Sagrada. Yeah, Santa Sagrada, yeah. Yeah, that's why I'm right. saying only three films. I've never seen The Holy Mountain. I've heard of it. Mm-hmm. But the only one of his movies I've ever seen is El Topo. I saw that years ago on VHS. A friend of mine, he had a copy of it because that movie is notoriously hard to get. I think it's only been in the last two or three years it came out on DVD, finally. Yeah. I do know that he was planning to do Doom. There was even a bunch of production drawings that were done. For one reason or another, he couldn't get the funding for it. It would have been very interesting. Orson Welles was attached to it because he was going to play Baron Harkonnen. This is how far back that went. Yeah. Well, there was a period of time when Doom was on that list of the great unfilmables, along with The Naked Lunch, which has been filmed. It's funny how many of the great unfilmables have been filmed since then. And that movie has nothing to do with being naked or Or lunch. lunch. (laughs) <laughs> As Nelson Muntz so perceptively put it. <laughs> oh my gosh. He said, there I, were two things wrong oh, with that, that title. <laughs> I love that film, though, because it is just so fucked up. Yeah, that's one of the few movies that you can watch absolutely straight 
and still feel like you dropped acid? For the longest time. Have you ever been to the Museum of the Moving Image? Not in a long time. For the longest time. It was basically just a glorified warehouse. There was two screening rooms. They would show special screenings. That's where I got to meet David Cronenberg. Because they had Cronenberg as a guest and he showed his student films and the, the episode of Friday the 13th that he did. But if you went up to the second floor, they had a special section devoted to special effects. Mm-hmm. And for the longest time, they had hanging from the ceiling those ugly centipede things from the Naked oh, wow. Lunch okay. and a mugwump. I'm looking at that going, oh. And it's one of the first things you see as you came up the stairs mm-hmm. is that nasty centipede. Yeah, disgusting thing. You know what I hate it? What? The type oh. that was a big bug. <laughs> Oh. That's all David Cronenberg oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's brilliant stuff. But the fact that it makes you feel so creepy is a testament to his talent. I have a feeling that sometime this year we will be talking about David Cronenberg at some length. I'm thinking he's on our short list of candidates for induction to the Great Great I was Hall. watching just the other day one of my favorite movies, the one he did with Jude Law. Oh, in Existence? Existence, yeah. I was watching that one. That thing is just like some... With a very young Christopher Eccleston trying to do an American accent and failing. Yeah, that thing is just deranged. Oh, Lord. It's one of these movies that get forgotten, while other movies that deal with the same subject, like The Matrix, is held up as an example. Oh, yeah, yeah this one. But that's another movie that plays with the thing of virtual reality. Is, doesn't Which, it? and let's be honest, he did this way back in the 80s with Videodrome. Oh, Videodrome, yeah. Where after a while, you don't know if what you're watching is real or in I mean, the imagination of somebody. You it, think of all the stuff that Cronenberg has preceded, because you can look at Videodrome as being the first echoes of what will go out of control and become torture porn. yeah. That's true. There's so many things that he was at the forefront of before anybody knew there was going to be things. Yeah. Like Crash. Crash is another one that's... T- I've been trying to get my friend Lorenzo to watch that, and I was describing oh. the scene between James Spader and Rosanna Arquette. You know which one I'm talking about, mm-hmm. I think. And he was... They didn't film that. I said, yes, they did. Yes, they did. But this is not a David Cronenberg episode. I have a feeling we're going to be doing a David Cronenberg episode soon. Probably. Because of the way we're talking right now. This is an episode about obscure movies. Okay, so we've got the listener mail out. Yes, thank Uh, you, Eric. Thank you, Ian. Happy New Year to everybody. Who is producing this episode, Tom? Okay, well, let's do that at the end of the episode. Okay, we'll do that. We'll go through the episode because. And we'll get right into the movies then. Right. Uh, Who wants to go first? uh, You go first. You always make me go first. Okay. Well, yeah, because you're so entertained. Going back chronologically like I always do in these episodes, and I'm going to a film which may very well be, if you thought The Return of Captain Invincible from last year was the most obscure movie I'd ever dug up, which is a film that I had to go to my dear, dear, lovely, red-headed friend, the Internet Fairy, to find. This film I couldn't even find with the Internet Fairy. That's how obscure it is. That's how obscure it is. I had to actually go deep down the rabbit hole, and eventually I found a place where I could watch it online. I am talking about Carl Copair's 1991 neo-noir delusion, which would be of interest to you, Derek, because it features one of your girls, Jennifer Rubin. Now keep in mind, by the way, this is a neo-noir made before neo-noir became the hot thing to do. This was made a year before Reservoir Dogs. Okay. This came out in 91. Reservoir Doors being shot in 91. Okay. George O'Brien, played by Jim Metzler, is a yuppified tech guy whose big computer 
company. He, he had this idea for this big computer that was going to rival Apple's. Failed. In fact, when we start the film, he is in the process of liquidating the company. Okay. And closing it up and handing it over to the people who bought him out. But he believes in his computer. Good man. He believes in his dream, so he cooks up a scheme with his accountant mm-hmm. that they're going to embezzle a quarter of a million dollars. Because they figure it's going to take months and months for them to figure out what happened to it, right? He's going to bezel a quarter of a million dollars through some creative bookkeeping. He's going to transport that million dollars himself to Reno, Nevada, where his father left him a warehouse that he could use to be the new office for this new company. Okay. And use that half a million dollars as startup capital to build a new company to continue manufacturing this computer that he believes in. I'm with you so far. Okay. So he's driving down a lonely desert road into Nevada, and there's this red car. Mm -hmm. Comes up behind him, passes him, starts wavering back and forth, crashes off the side of the road. There's a big gout of flames, so Jim Metzler, being a decent guy, even though he's an embezzler, goes to see if he can help the crash victims. And there are a young couple. Patty, played by Jennifer Rubin, Mm -hmm. And Chevy, played by Kyle Secor, who is really, really, really wanting to be Ben Affleck in this film. Okay. He looks eerily like a young Ben Affleck. Yeah, Kyle Secor, if I remember right, he was in Homicide. Yes. So, And you're right. If you look at him in a certain light, yeah, he does look like Ben Affleck. Patty explains that they went off the road because Chevy has some sort of weird ulcer. And he had a serious attack and lost control of the car. Okay. And they need a ride to... We don't know where. Where are you going? I'm going to Vegas because apparently Patty is a showgirl and Chevy is their manager. But the thing is, is that you could tell almost immediately that Chevy and Patty are not quite right. First mm-hmm. off, they know who he is. Mm-hmm. Chevy tries to explain, oh, well, they're tagged in your car, say you're George O'Brien. Mm-hmm. That's how I knew. It's the first of a couple of mistakes that these people make. Eventually, it turns out, George hijacks the car and forces George to take him out to visit his friend, Larry, played by Jerry Orbach. Where it becomes very obvious that Chevy is not a manager of showgirls, but is a hitman Mm -hmm. for a man by the name of Mr. Sales, who is played by Robert Casanza. And he reveals that, yeah, we're going to kill this jackass because he's been bezeled a bunch of money that belonged to a bunch of the wrong people. George is freaking out. That's the setup. There are a number of different twists and turns. The most amazing thing about this film is that it's not the story of the person you thought it was at the beginning. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of cat and mouse between... It's basically a three-handed game through most of the film between George, Chevy, with Patty in the middle, which sounds vaguely dirty. Dirty enough for me. Dirty yeah, enough for you. Oh, no, trust me. There's, a lot, for you to, Rubin. there's yeah. a lot for you to like in this film since you are Jennifer... It's probably her best performance, I think, in any of the films she's been in. Okay. But she flashes her ass a couple of times. Nothing wrong she with that. She is nude in one very extended sequence. Absolutely nothing, nothing wrong with that. that. She spends the rest of the film in either a cute little flowered sundress and these big, goofy red cowboy boots or this red, tight 90s skirt. And you get to see her sing and dance a version of, although it's not her voice, sadly. It's Anita Lewis who does the vocals. Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Were Made For Walking. Oh, okay. The thing about this film is that you can see a lot of the stuff that would become tiresome five years later when everybody's trying to imitate Tarantino. The Southwestern backdrop. There's a lot of weird circuit characters that they occasionally pass through. 
quirky yeah. dialogue. Yeah. A lot of pop references. Oh, God. well, no. And there's... always the big twist. Yeah. The big reveal. What people got obsessed with. But there's got to be a plot twist that right. nobody sees coming. Yeah. I don't think there is a big reveal. Although at least two of these characters, well, all three of these characters are transformed. Two of them are transformed very profoundly. And the one person who actually, in my opinion, is the hero of the film, is actually mm-hmm. the person the film is about, changes in a very positive way. It does have its flaws, but it is a very watchable film. It had a VHS release and then has sunk without a trace. I've never been able to find any record of a DVD release or a Blu-ray release. It's a beautiful film. It's really well shot. It also features, I don't know if it's the only example of this, a soundtrack by the new age jazz musician Barry Adamson, which is really interesting and really distinct. Among other things, what he does is he'll take snippets of dialogue from previous in the film mm-hmm. and alter it electronically mm-hmm. and incorporate that into the score. The funny thing is, I think that the soundtrack to the film, which is very, very interesting, is more available than the film itself. Yeah, yeah. But it's a great movie. It's got some great performance. All three of the main actors give very strong performance. I do think it's definitely Jennifer Rubin's best performance of any film. You and I have had this discussion. I think Jennifer Rubin kind of had the career she's supposed to have because I don't think she was that great an actress. She wasn't that great. Out and out. Gorgeous. As much as I like her, I have to admit. But then again, look at all the actresses that we do have who are not great and who Mm -hmm. look just as beautiful as she is. She's got this Sean Young look to her. Kicking ass by. I mean, there's one time in this film. And the camera loves her. Yeah. There is one time in this film where she is pretty much near naked and she asks George, because they're alone in a hotel room while... Chevy goes to pick up some money from his boss in Las Vegas. And she said, do you like them? Yeah. She's displaying her very, and yes, they are natural, and yes, they are perfect. They are spectacular. Spectacular, yes. Now, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Now, this is an ethical question here, mm-hmm. which I've been asked by certain people myself. Do you think that it is fair to review a movie like this and give it such a positive, glowing review and get people wanting to see it when there is, in fact, no way for them to see it. But maybe, by talking about it, there might be some pressure to get a release of it. Thank you, Thomas. There you go. No, actually, because I do get people asking me from time to time, I really like to see this movie, but I don't know where I can find it at. Listen, you're sitting in front of your computer, right? Look for it. But you know something? You can go to places like Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. I know there is a website where you can submit movies that you want to see. I can't think of it right Mm -hmm. now. I'm going to look for it later on, and I'm going to put it up on the... Now, I think one of the reasons why this film disappeared is that it's an indie film. And I'm thinking that maybe the company that put up the money for it went out of business. But also, a lot of times, what holds up a lot of these movies is the music. For whatever reason, they can't get the soundtrack, they can't get the rights to the music This one soundtrack? Yeah. There's only one song, which is that version of These Boots Were Made For Walking. Okay. And that comes towards the very, very end of the film. Mm -hmm. And they could probably get around that very quickly. Everything else is... Well, they could cut it out. Worst comes to worst and substitute something else. Yeah, and everything else is written specifically for the film or from Barry Adams' back catalog. Okay. I should also mention something else because we brought up this actor once before when we were doing the Spike Lee episode. Remember when we were talking about She's Gotta Have It and you mentioned that you thought that the guy who played the quote-unquote the normalist Mm -hmm. of Nola Darling's boyfriends, Mm -hmm. whatever happened to him? Yeah. He's in this movie. Oh, okay, cool. I didn't realize that till last night when I'm watching him. He has a small role as a cop. I'm like, that guy looks familiar. Mm -hmm. 
I know that guy. And it turns out, yeah, that's Tommy Redmond Hicks. Um, I'm glad to see he's still around. I spoke about Return of Captain Invincible because everybody wanted to hear about this. I speak about this because I'm hoping maybe I can start a groundswell for somebody mm. to actually release it on Blu-ray or DVD. It's not that it's a bad-looking film. I've seen films look a lot worse than this get uh, Blu-ray okay. releases. I... This film is beautiful. It's got actors who are still, if not like A-level, they're still well-known. Mm. To Kyle Sikor has had a really good career. Yeah, He's been yeah. in Homicide. He was in Veronica Mars. Right. Jerry Orbach. Let's see, it's 1991, so it's, he's still got a ways to go, but it's, this is a loss. It's, it's a small performance, but a significant performance. It really should be And Jerry available. Orbach, he's a guy that, if you've never seen yeah. him, he did a lot more besides Lord Order. He was an accomplished song and dance man. Right. He was in many Broadway shows. I didn't know that until, unfortunately, after... He had passed away. Just from the cast alone, I would want to watch this. Right. For people who love Jennifer Rubin, this is the movie for you because she's got one of those 90s short haircuts, but mm-hmm. she is gorgeous in this film. Good. So there we go. So is it on me? It's on you. Little backstory here, folks. I had always thought that I was a member of mm-hmm. the Dread Media Facebook page. Right. Turns out that I'm not. Oh, okay. So I signed up and I finally joined the Dread Media Facebook page. And if you guys, if none of you are members yet, you should join up because they have a lot of stimulating conversations. They have a lot of fun over there. And they were talking about a whole bunch of movies over there, much as we do on right. the Better in the Dorm Facebook page. And one of the movies that they talked about sounded kind of intriguing. So I said, well, let me see if it's on right. Netflix. Instant. Mm-hmm. I typed in the information. Sure enough, it was on there. And I said, goody. Right. Now I know what I'm going to be watching tonight. And the movie that I watch, now it's known as this British title of Curse of the Crimson Altar. And mm-hmm. if you watch it on Netflix, that's the title that's going to come up. But that's not, not the title you want to look for it as. Right. You look for it as the Crimson Cult. Okay, so that's what I'm going to call it. It's a 1968 British horror movie done by Tygen right. films, which we've talked about in the past. They weren't Hammer. Mm-hmm. They weren't even... Amicus. They weren't even amicus. But God, did they try. This movie, I particularly wanted to see it because it stars Christopher Lee and Boris Karloff. And as far as I know, I, mean, I didn't even know that they had made a movie together. Mm-hmm. This was the last movie that Boris Karloff made. This mean you were talking about right. the other night. There were some other movies that came to the theaters after this one, but he had filmed them before this one. This was the actual last movie that Boris Karloff worked on. And supposedly it's based on... A short story by H.P. Lovecraft, The Dreams in the Witch House, but I don't know from that. All I know is I sat down and watched it, and it was an entertaining little movie for a number of reasons, which I'm going to go into after the plot synopsis. We got this guy named Robert Manning, played by Mark Eden. He's an antique dealer. So is his brother. His brother goes missing. He didn't show up for this auction where he was supposed to be at. So Robert says, hmm, let me go see if I can find him. So the last place he knows that his brother stayed at was a place called Crackstead Law which is owned by our old friend Christopher Lee. So he goes there and he says, where's my brother? Well, your brother never stayed here. I don't know about your brother. He's a very pleasant, genial host. There's nothing suspicious going on. Christopher Lee even says, you know, listen, why don't you stay tonight? It's the least I can do. Well, okay, I'll stay the night. 
That's when he starts having these dreams. These satanic rituals presided over by a green-skinned barber steel. I had a dream. Yeah. A dream about you, baby. Matter, matter of fact, folks, let me tell you when I made it, my mom was going to watch this movie. Okay. I just showed Tom the scene. And for those of you who says, well, Derek, you can't be as shallow as you always make yourself out to be. Yes, I can. Because the very first scene of this movie has a bare-breasted woman beating the shit out of another naked woman with a cat and nine tails. And I say, yes, I'm sold. And we should also <laughs> mention that the first one, the one with the whip, is holding a chicken. Because, of course, it can't be a Better the Dark Obscure Movies episode without a chicken. So, see, once I see this now, there is no way I'm not watching this movie. So, yes, mm-hmm. I am that shallow. Robert keeps on having these dreams, but to him, they feel too real to be dreams. And Christopher Lee says, you drink too much. In the meantime, Robert is getting involved with the guy's niece, Mm -hmm. Eve, who helps him in his investigations. And then we have Boris Karloff, who's a professor. He's an expert on witchcraft and witchcraft cults. He's lurking around the movie, pushed in his wheelchair. And we don't know what the deal with him is because he gets pissed off at Robert at the beginning because Robert doesn't appreciate the fine brandy that he's brought over. He knows a lot about the history of the house. Lavina Morley, who is an ancestor of the Christopher Lee character, Mm -hmm. and supposedly she was a witch, and she was burned at the stake at this village that the house is in every year. They celebrate this. It's like they're yeah, burn the witch. And they burn her in effigy and all this kind of, oh man. Christopher Lee, he says, yeah, my ancestor was a witch. So what? Big fucking deal. <laughs> yada, 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 witch, yeah. Yeah, right. So after a while, Robert does discover that his brother did stay at Crackstead Lodge. <laughs> Eve helps him out and right. to find out what happened to his brother and why is Christopher Lee's character covering up what happened? Mm-hmm. Let me tell you right off the bat, that there's nothing supernatural in this movie. Right. Until the last 30 seconds of the movie, and even then that can be explained away. It's not like a supernatural thing, even though they try to make you think there's some supernatural elements in it. What it is is really just a bunch of crazy people dressing up as witches and druids. <laughs> so it's basically a night at Jeff Lope's house. Yeah, except for the Barbara Steele character. We're not sure if she is actually the witch come back. Mm-hmm. Trying to get revenge for what happened to her. This movie is very 60. Right. It's got a orgy scene at the beginning. That's like one of the tamest orgy scenes yeah. I've ever seen in my life. The acting is nothing to brag about, of course. But it is fun to watch Christopher Lee and Boris Karloff in the same movie acting right. together in the same scene. I had never heard about a movie where they acted together. And these guys are horror icons. These are gods of the horror genre. I only wish they had been in a better movie, but that having been said, there's actually really nothing wrong with this movie. It's not a movie I'm going to tell you go out of your way to see, but if you do have Netflix streaming, and if you are a horror fan, and you like Christopher Lee, and you like Boris Karloff, I do recommend you give this a try. It's not a long movie. I don't even think it's right. even 90 minutes long. Well, it you says know. there that it's 89 minutes long, yeah, so you're correct. Yeah, 89 minutes minutes long. I mean, it's not a long movie. It's not demanding of your attention. It's just a nice little 60s thriller horror and I recommend it on that basis. It's a lot of fun. Boris Karloff, Christopher Lee, you can't go wrong. I love the Tygon films because they are so retarded. Matter of fact, we have talked before about doing yes. a whole episode on the Tygon films because of their retardedness. Yes. <laughs> well, remember, Tygon produced one of my favorite horror movies from this era, which is Blood on Satan's Claw. Right, yeah, which exactly. Is, we talked about that. I think it was like the second or third obscure horror movies episode. I mean, this is no Blood on Satan's Claw. Yeah, but for every Blood on Satan's Claw, you had the Blood Beast Must Die, where Wanda Ventham, because of her father's, Peter Cushing's weird experiments, turns into a blood-sucking moth when aroused. Mm, Try saying that three times fast. (laughs) This is what 
I like to call a nice middle of the road movie. Right. It's not, oh yeah, I gotta see this. Or this is the but also, I wouldn't throw it on the trash heap either. It's something that you put on. And it's also one of the rare times that we got an H.P. Lovecraft film. Even after Reanimator. For some reason, people are stymied by Lovecraft. I think part of it is because Lovecraft always was writing about how he couldn't describe things. Every H.P. Lovecraft story I've ever read comes down yes. to the same thing. Sooner or later, some poor bastard ends up saying, Oh, and as I looked, the indescribable horror of what I was seeing engulfed my brain and washed mm-hmm. over me in a flood of sensory agony that I... Yes. Basically, what he's saying is, What the fuck is yes. that? <laughs> I, mean, I don't what, know what that is. That's what every... It don't look like what's in the book. That's what every H.P. Lovecraft yes. story comes down to sooner or later. Some poor bastard going, What the fuck is that? <laughs> but like in the 60s, what did we have? We had this. Mm-hmm. We had... Dunwich Horror. Apparently, that was something Roger Corman really wanted to do, was he wanted to do Lovecraft movies. But he just kept having problems doing the adaptation, because he did The Haunted Palace, which, if you remember, was kind of like, if you'll pardon the expression, a backdoor pilot for the H.P. Lovecraft series that he wanted to do, because Mm -hmm. it was an H.P. Lovecraft story Mm -hmm. that he then branded as part of the the Poe series. And there was also Die, Monster, Die, which was the adaption of The Color Out of Space. We have not seen a lot more after that. We've nah. seen a couple of times the attempt to adapt the statement of Randolph Carter, which was the story that was adapted for The Haunted Palace, also was adapted for a very good... What was the name of that? I'll have to look that up, because that might be a good thing for the obscure horror movies. Episode. There was a one with Chris Sarandon and Jane Syberry. Mm-hmm. That was very, very good. They recast that novel as a film noir department detective story. Really? I have to look that up. They've tried to do a couple of other things, and it hasn't been always successful. Well, recently, and we talked about this, one of our favorite filmmakers, Guillermo del Toro. Wanted to do At the Mountain of Madness. Wanted to do At the Mountain of Madness. However, he insisted it had to be AR-rated, and there yeah. was a certain budget he demanded. He said, no, I'm not going to cut. And the studio didn't want to do it. They said, we wanted PG-13. For that budget, we want... And you got to cut yeah. the budget by about like $100 million. And Del Toro said, cool. And he went off and he made Pacific Rim. (laughs) Mecca versus Kaiju. How can you not love that? The man's a genius. And I am firmly convinced. What do I like to write about? I like giant monsters. I'm firmly convinced that if we got a Guillermo del Toro at the Mountains of Madness, the way that he wants to do it, it would be the first movie in history that would drive people insane. (laughs) Giving his imagery. Oh, another H.P. Lovecraft movies that... Yeah. But this turned to H.P. Lovecraft yeah. episode that we forgot. One of your favorite movies, The John Carpenter, The Prince of Darkness. Not one of my favorite movies. It's not a favorite movie of mine at all. <laughs> For me, the, and the other one that the, he did. Oh, uh, In the Mouth of Madness. In the Mouth of Madness. For me, The Prince of Darkness isn't so much John Carpenter wanting to do H.P. Lovecraft. It's John Carpenter wanting to do Nigel Neal and a Quatermass ah, story. Ah, okay. Oh, and that movie is a yeah. mess and a half. I know there are certain people who love it like Des Reddick, but I thought it was a total mess and it was all over the place, although I love the very end where we get that message from the future. Yeah, it's a weird movie. I have a message for you and you're not going to like it. It's a weird movie. But I watch it and then 10 minutes later, I couldn't tell yeah. you what happens in it though. I can sit and watch that movie and 10, 15 minutes later, you will ask me well, what happened. I couldn't tell you. It, and, it, and At the Mouth of Madness, I think is a total total and absolute mess. 
It's a freaky movie out. But you know what always freaks me out? What? When the chick looks around the corner of the police car. Yeah. And then she comes around and her body is completely turned all backwards yeah. like a spider. And she, holy shit. I know, what the hell is that? But I always think of that as a Lovecraft inspired. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Well, there have been films that have been inspired by Lovecraft. There's also an obscure film that Brian Yuzna did called Society, which also seems to be very kind of Lovecrafty and inspired. About a secret society of very rich people who get into these weird orgies where they meld into each other. I mean, literally, it's a weird, weird film. This is a movie, yes, I firmly recommend it. Watch it, have a lot of fun with it, as long as you don't expect too much out of it. Keep in mind that it's a 1968 movie. Yeah. And yes, people thought it acted a lot different about a lot of yeah. things back then. So This is 68, so it's a couple of years off from Dracula 1972 AD, where we actually had Lovin'. Yeah. In a Dracula movie. Never thought you'd hear us say yes. that, did you? <laughs> anyway. And with that, I'm going to throw it back to my partner. That, with a movie that both of us are going to gush over for a while, so you may want to get the yeah. towel handy. This is a film that you didn't know about until I brought it up when we were recording the Obscure Horror Movies episode right. back in September. Right. When we were talking about found footage movies, and I asked Des, Des, did you see Series 7? Actually, the full name of this is Series 7, The Contenders. Mm -hmm. It's a 2001 film, a film that was done by a man by the name of Daniel Minahan. Daniel Minahan cut his teeth. His first job in show business was as a segment producer. Remember back in the 90s when Fox had all those world's most exciting animal attacks? Yes. World's dumbest people. Yes. Daniel Minahan. Oftentimes in the same episode. Yes, in the same <laughs> <laughs> Worst animal attacks on some of the world's stupidest people. people. Yeah, I told you, in this yes. episode. Daniel Minahan was one of the line producers who put together the segments on those shows okay. that were almost all pervasive on Fox during the mid-90s. Well, they had to fill up time. And he hated that job. Truly and absolutely despised it. If you've ever seen some of them, you know why. So, filled with loathing for his job after he got out, he wrote a screenplay called Series 7, The Contenders, which was about a fictitious reality show. And supposedly the original screenplay, it was supposed to be shot on regular film, it was about stuff that was going on behind the scenes. But because he realized that he could cut his budget significantly mm. by shooting it on high-def video, he decided to abandon the narrative form and create it as if it was an actual episode, episode. Uh, so of this fictional reality show. What this is, is a marathon of Series 7 of a fictitious reality television show called The Contenders, which takes place in some weird alternative universe we don't learn anything about, and there's a good reason for that, and I'll get to that in a moment, where apparently... The producers of the show, in cooperation with the United States government, run a national lottery to pick six people at random. Although, there's hints that maybe this isn't random. Choose a city at random, and then set them loose with guns and rifles yeah, to kill each other until one person's left. If you survive three of them, you get your freedom. Right, you're exempt from participating in any more. The present champion at the time of the film starting is Don Legato, played by Brooke Smith, who should have had a bigger career. 
Yeah. Brooke Smith is an amazing actress. And as you point out to me, and I did not know yeah. this until I went back and I looked at mm -hmm. my DVD of the movie, she was a girl in the pit in The yes. Silence of the Lambs. Tom She's nine right. months pregnant, and mm -hmm. the first thing we see of her in the film is her walking into a convenience store, coming up behind a guy, shooting him in the back, shooting him a couple of times to make About sure he's five dead. five or six times, yeah. Yes. She's not bullshitting around. When she he falls to the floor, she shoots him a couple more times, yeah. then points the gun at the clerk and goes, do you have any bean dip? We're following Dawn in what is going to be her last series. This is her last. She's nine months pregnant. She's going to drop this baby at any time. If she survives this series, she's free and clear. Right. It's being held randomly. in Don't they North get a cash prize too? I, they like never that? mention a cash prize. Okay. The randomly chosen battleground is Norwalk, Connecticut, which happens to be Dawn's hometown. Right. One of the new contenders is apparently Jeffrey, played by Glenn Fitzgerald, mm -hmm. who happens to be Dawn's first, first boyfriend, boyfriend. Yeah. And true love, so to speak. And he is since married. He has testicular cancer, mm -hmm. and apparently ha is homosexual. Yeah. So he's got issues. The other contenders are Connie Trabuca, mm -hmm. an elderly nurse who very, very casually mentions in the pre-interview before the game that she's an angel of mercy. She kills people. She turns out to be the real monster yeah. of this story because it's strongly hinted. Well, you picked up on it more yeah. than I did, but I felt that it was put forth very subtly that she's pulled the plug on a couple of her yeah. clients. You know, and she's played magnificently by Mary Louise Burke. Yeah. Who is one of these actresses that you've probably seen in really small roles in TV and movies, but she's always a background person, somebody you would never expect, and she is amazing in this film. Now, even though you're going to watch this movie, and trust me, by the time we're done with this, you're you going to watch, watch this movie. This. Even though the character we're introduced to first is the one that we're supposed to feel, yeah. oh, she's the monster. That, oh, watch this old broad. I mean, the, the, the thing about this film. Keep your eyes on the old broad. Is how Dawn does horrifying things in this film. She yeah. does some truth. We're not letting her off the hook. There is a sequence where they're interviewing her and she's talking about her strategy. Mm -hmm. And she's talking about how you have to be reactive and you have to be adaptive. Oh, make no mistake. She's a yeah. hardcore bitch. And while she's doing this interview, mm -hmm. they're showing highlights from the previous two series where you see her bursting into a bathroom and drowning a woman yeah. in the toilet. She ambushes another person in a elevator and, and garrotes her to yeah, death. Damn, it cuts her head off with the yeah, damn thing. Yeah. She is a brutal... I think there's an excellent interview that Brooke Smith and Daniel Minahan did for a podcast called The Projection Booth. Brooke revealed that what she did when she approached this role was try to approach as if she was suffering from perpetual road rage. Yeah, and see... This character, and I've said this to yeah. somebody else who has seen the movie and I discussed it with him, and they couldn't see the difference. Yeah. But see, you're an intelligent man. You'll know mm -hmm. the difference. This pregnant chick, she's a killer, yes. But the old lady is a monster. Yeah. There is a she's, difference. There's that scene where, I, I guess I'm not spoiling anything, but the fact is she does end up giving birth midway through the show. Mm -hmm. And Connie is you know, acting as midwife. Yeah. And she goes off while she's delivering on this diatribe again. It's her. a hell of a scene because you don't know what's going yeah. to happen. You say, wait a minute. Because she yeah, says, yeah. I'll save your baby, but then you're going down. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, you're looking at But you know that this chick is not to be underestimated either. See, I half expected her to have a pistol up yeah. under there. As soon as this baby pop out of there, yeah. I'm Blow, popping you. her away, yeah. 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 We uh, got the young girl. The young girl who yeah. is played... 
by Mary Weaver. It's funny because at first, the parents, because what happens is apparently the producers show up in the middle of the night, knock on your door, and hand you a gun saying, good luck. Good luck. Yeah, get the hell out of here. And when they they show up at Lindsay's house, the mother just kind of stands in the door going, no, 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 no. But then they become the ultimate stage parents. Yeah. They drive her out to the other guy. There's this weird conspiracy theory guy. Right. Guy. And they're like, what you going to do? I'm going to blow his fucking head off. Mm-hmm. And just rooting her on and buying her all these weapons. And, and they stuff. buy her knives and yeah. guns. They let her have sex in the house. Yeah. Which really, she said, this is pretty good. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, you know. There's the family guy who's really like Riley, who's a real douche. Who's really kind of a coward. Yeah. You know, he he leaves his wife and kids behind. He takes the car and he, he takes the, no, he, And this is one of the great things about this film is that Menahan does give a storyline. Yeah. And the thing about Anthony is that we got the impression Anthony went to jail. We learned that one of the kids is not even his. And he freaks out. And he kidnaps the baby. He kidnaps the baby daughter so he can get away and get out of the game. That leads to one of the ludicrously funny lines after they come back from the commercial break, so to speak. They come back to him in the hospital saying, Anthony suffered a self-inflicted wound to the back. (laughs) You know what happened. Yeah, you know exactly what happened. He's paralyzed. (laughs) I don't believe it was a self-inflicted wound either. Now, if you've been listening to us for a while, you know how much time and I will go off on found footage movies. Now, there are only two found footage movies that that I can recommend wholeheartedly. One of them is Cloverfield, and this is the other one. If anything, they are actually too good at making this seem like a reality show. Because Minahan, this is where, remember I told you how I now understand why Minahan did not want to go into the world? Right. In the interview at the Projection Booth, he mentioned that even though the original script had some discussion about what happened that brought America to this, Mm -hmm. he said, when we decided to go with this being a fictitious show, uh, mm-hmm. like a marathon, I didn't want to bring in the background elements because if I did, people would look at it as science fiction. Exactly. And they would be distracted from what I really wanted They would to. be too removed from right. it. Right. You honestly look at it and you say, well, how far are we away from where this is? Given where we're going in reality programming, continually looking for the next big thing. And you'll notice how, even though, and don't get me wrong, this film, it's an R-rated film. It comes by its R-rating absolutely honestly. And there is a lot of violence in the film. You'll notice that it's not gory. No, it's because, not. And I think it's that it's a conscious decision because Menahem wanted to make this to look like it could appear on a network somewhere. Because, the, without giving anything away, what happens to that little to girl? Lindsay. Oh, yeah. If they had shown that, that would have been one of the most horrifying well, things. Well, it still is the one of the most horrifying. It is. It's horrifying the way she goes out. You don't really see. Here's an example of you why. You know what I'm talking yeah, about. You don't really see what. Yeah. You get the implication. Even that's bad. Yeah. Enough. And this is an example of how Minahan keeps us on Dawn's side, even though mm. she is a horrific person. She calls out a warning. Yeah, well, this is what I say, is yeah. the difference between her and that other woman is she's a killer. Right. But she's not a monster. She at least wants the girl to have a fair chance to defend herself. As opposed to a Connie, who... Quite frankly, kills somebody in cold. The guy's screaming, This isn't fair. This is supposed to be a contest. This is. Well, yeah. She's a sneaky bitch. Yeah. (laughs) That's the only way I can put it. Oh, God. Yeah. We're talking about how gruesome this film is and how horrific it is. Mm. It's also laugh out loud. It's very funny. You wouldn't think that a movie like this could be funny, (laughs) but you know when this really is funny? What? Everything goes haywire. Yeah. Two of the contestants decided they're going to leave, yeah. and they all of a sudden, now they got to do the My favorites. But your favorite lines in the film, first off, <laughs> there is a car chase, if you can call it that, between 
Dawn, and Connie. Uh And at one point, Connie stops for a stop sign. Yeah. And Dawn's like, you got to be kidding me. you got to be kidding me. (laughs) And they're about to go into, in her condo, she's put up boards and stuff. She's Mm -hmm. totally fortified the place. Dawn's about to come in, and she turns to the cameraman, because everybody's followed by a cameraman. She goes, can you turn off the light, please? And the cameraman says, well, we have to follow you around. Can't see anything. She says, okay, you go in first. And then the guy turns up the light. But no, what makes it funny is what? that, and see, this is why timing is so important in comedy. There is a significant beat. And you can almost feel what the cameraman <laughs> is thinking. And then without another word, he just click and it goes off. Yeah. And then there's, of course, the, the scene at the beginning where Dawn is driving around to, with the cell phone figure to go call them and fuck with them a bit. Yeah. And she's like, Connie, hi, it's Dawn. How are you? Just want to let you know there's a bomb in your house. Yeah, yeah, she goes, three, two, one. And she gives people a because that's how she ambushes the other guy. There's a bomb in the house, and he runs out, and she bam, bam. Oh, man. It's a genuinely funny film. I think that's probably one of the reasons why the film doesn't have the cult rep that I think it deserves. Most people can't decide whether it's straight film or a... Because it's so painstaking in its recreation of your average USA or Fox reality show, there's this disconnect that the audience doesn't know how to approach it. Short digression. There's a show on now created by the comedian Mm -hmm. Kevin Hart. And it stars a lot of black guys. And it's called The Real Husbands of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And it's Kevin Hart is in it. Not Justin Timberlake. Robin Thicke is in it. J.B. Smooth. And what it is is that the movie is a satire of The Real Housewives kind of thing. It's scripted, but it's done in the style of a reality show. So me and Patricia are watching it and it's hilarious and it's funny. and it's So then the next day I'm looking on Facebook and there's a lot of people on there who apparently think that this is a real reality <laughs> show. And I'm talking to my cousin, because my cousin said, oh, did you watch it? Did you watch it? And I said, yeah. And she's talking about it. And there's a part in there because Kevin Paul is lusting after Robin Thicke's right. wife. And she says, oh, well, Robin Thicke should have punched him in the mouth. And he was being disrespectful. You do get that this right. is a satire. Mm-hmm. So she pauses for a minute and she says, Derek, it's a reality show. And, and then it hit me. Oh, my God. There are people that really cannot distinguish between, and I think you hit it right on right. the head with this movie. Some people would see this and say, wow, man, when does this show come and, on? And I want to Minahan, see the recreation Minahan does is so scarily accurate. Well, this is my whole point. If you didn't know better and you just started watching this on TV, like if they put it on TV, and start, you might think you're watching an actual reality show. That's how close he comes to the whole style. And so they even have commercial breaks. Mm-hmm. And the, the narrator? Yeah. Will Arnett. Will Arnett, of all people. This would make a good double feature with the movie from the 60s. I don't know if it's available on Netflix. I'm going to have to see mm-hmm. because that would have made a good choice for an obscure movie. Called The Seventh Victim with Ursula Andress. See, I thought about that as I was watching the film. Yeah. yeah. Which is based it, on a Robert Sheckley novel. Right. Called The Twelfth Victim, I right. believe. Yeah. This is Marcello Mastriani was yeah. in that movie with her. With Ursula well. Andress. And, Ursula Andress, And yeah. her bull, uh, literally your bullet bra. Yeah. Those of you who have never seen that movie, it's a movie, it's pretty much the same premise where people are paired up together to hunters and killers and right. the hunters have to find the... Well, people are killing each other. Let me yeah. put it this way. And if you survive seven of these contests, you're, you're free. Good 
to go, right. right. You know, these two would make good double feature. But ever since you turned me on to it, I've been recommending it to everybody that I know. It had a very small theatrical run. It mm-hmm. did not do, I think, as well as anybody expected to do. And then it sank without a trace. It has had a DVD release that is still available through Netflix called the Series 7 Contenders Marathon Edition, which includes, among other things... Oh, that's the other really funny moment at the very end. What's that? One of the characters is holding a theater full of people hostage. The character is making her demands known. Give us this or some people are going to die. And everybody applauds. Everybody cheers and just turns around and says... That's you we're talking about, assholes. She said, you dumb sex of shit. We're talking about you. That's during the recreation. That's just just before the recreation. Oh, my God. I love the fact that the recreation... And they're cheering and clapping. She turned around. She said, we're talking about you. Dumb shits. And I love the fact that in the recreation, they get these people who look kind of, sort of like Glenn Fitzgerald and... Brooke Smith, but not really. Not quite, yeah. So the original ending had Dawn and Jeff escaping the movie theater successfully, only to be met with a group of disgruntled contenders fans <laughs> who did not like that they broke script, if you will, and beat them to death. Yeah, beat them to death. Oh, you know what? I could have went for that, too. But this is an amazing, amazing film. And it is available yes, it on is. Netflix. It is. All you people who talk about, oh, Exorcism was a great found footage film. This was a great found footage film. That was a great found footage film. And this is the real deal. This, this is the real this deal. This is a great found footage film. And one well worth seeing. And the scariest thing is, you can almost see, ten years down the line, something like this. Oh, I'm pretty sure we're going to see something. And know how it's going to start? It's going to start slowly. I'm actually surprised we haven't had something like simulated death matches mm-hmm. where people are giving guns. But it's got little paintballs in yeah. it. And then it's only a Well, there up. was that. It was a short-lived series. It was on UPN. It was produced by WWE, of all people. Because mm-hmm. it was part of one of the, the hours they were given to, to fill on UPN. And it was hosted by the then... Not yet officially a member of the WWE, John Cena. They had different guys as his hunters mm. hunting people down on a tropical island. Oh, really? Okay. With paint. Yeah, they've done this before. So it's All not, right. it's, it's definitely not conceivable. Although supposedly this was the thing where apparently one of the major inspirations for this was Minahan watching Survivor and going, if you're going to call it Survivor, there should actually be a Survivor. Yeah, go full Lord of the Flies, man. Let's see cannibalism. Let's see heads getting hacked off. Once they kick you off the island, they really kick you off the island. You got to swim back to yeah. shore. If they started doing that, you know, they talk about, oh, revitalizing the whole survival thing because the ratings have been... The ratings have been pretty know, bad yeah. lately. Start doing this shit for real. Mm-hmm. I guarantee your ratings will go up. So there you go. But yes, this is definitely... I am guarantee most people have not seen this, but you have to see this. This film is amazing. Yes, and yes. Why Brooke Smith never got a bigger career is beyond me. Matter of fact, I am going to go so far, I'm going to say out of all the movies that we're Mm -hmm. going to talk about, this is one of the two that I would say that you have to see. And I don't say that too often, but I'm going to say yes. you got to see The Contenders, Mm -hmm. Series 7. And what, may you ask, is the other movie that I insist that you have to see? Well, I'm glad you asked okay, that. Okay, Because there we go. I'm going to talk about it right now. The other movie that I insist you have to see is Sunset from 1988, written and directed by Blake Edwards and starring Bruce Willis and James Garner. J- 
James Garner Troy in his second time as the legendary lawman right. Wyatt Earp, which mm-hmm. he first played in Gunfight at the OK right. Corral with Kirk Douglas playing Doc Holliday. This movie is one that I have been talking about for ages. I'm glad I finally got to see it again after a long time. It's a movie that, believe me, people have forgotten. It was mm-hmm. done pretty early on in Bruce Willis's career. And I have a theory as for why this movie has been completely forgotten. Right. I actually remember seeing commercials for this movie. And it was billed as being this light, mm-hmm. jokey kind of action comedy. Actually, it's not. It's a serious murder mystery set in Hollywood in 1929. The mm-hmm. premise is this. Bruce Willis plays cowboy star Tom Mix. Right. Now, the name won't mean a lot to a lot of you listening to this, but back then in the late 20s and 30s, mm-hmm. Tom Mix was, how can I put this? He was like Tom Cruise, Justin Timberlake, and... Anybody else big name star that you can name. Tom Mix was it. Every Western star that came after him has acknowledged that they owe something to Tom Mix. He was a template. And apparently he was the real deal. He could ride and shoot and rope and do all of those. Because back then, they did their own stunt. Wyatt Earp comes to Hollywood to act as a consultant because Tom Mix is doing a movie about the gunfight at the OK Corral. They get involved in a murder that is mixed up with Malcolm McDowell's character, Alfie Alperin, which is a very thinly veiled riff on Charlie Chaplin. Even though he's supposed to be this lovable, affable guy, he's a sexual deviant. A murder is committed by his son. And as we find out that Wyatt Earp hasn't just come back just as a consultant on this movie. It just happened to come at the same time. But his ex-girlfriend is now married to Malcolm McDowell. So he's come back to help her with the situation where the son apparently has murdered somebody. He gets involved with Mariel Hemingway who runs a whorehouse. There's no other way to put it. And it turns out that she knows a lot more about this mystery that she's letting on as well. This movie, I cannot recommend this enough. Simply for the fact that, okay, let's take the performances. Bruce Willis. This is 1988. This is still early in his career. This is the Bruce Willis of Moonlighting. Die Hard. With the smirk. And he still had his own hair. But however, he's playing more of a dramatic role. This is not a comedy. It's a dramatic movie. It's a murder mystery. So he's playing a little bit more dramatic here. And he played very well with James Garner. Who, even though he is primarily known as a comedic actor, could play a badass when he wants to. If you ever doubt me, watch Duelet Diablo, a movie I've talked about. And there's a number of other movies where James Garner has played some very mean, rough guys. This one, he plays plays a wide earth that, quite frankly, you don't want to fuck with. Large part of the enjoyment of this movie comes from the relationship between him as this guy who's, who was in the real Wild West. He meets up with this guy who plays being in the Wild West, but as they go through this mystery together, solving it, he gets to have a respect for him right. as he sees that the guy, even though he's in the movies, he knows that it's all bullshit. Yeah. He's not trying to pass himself off as being anything more than what he really is. And it's a nice little development to see their relationship go on. We've got Mario Hemingway. We've got Kathleen Quinlan, one of my favorite 80s actresses. And Emmett Walsh, he plays a part as a crooked chief of police of Hollywood. But he's crooked to the gills, and Wyatt Earp knows it, and they have a lot of good back and forward exchanges. Mm-hmm. The solution to the mystery is kind of convoluted. I'm going to tell you, but I really didn't even mind that because you expect that in a murder mystery. For me, if it's too simple to figure out, then there's something lacking in it. So I appreciated the fact that they really took time to build a story and actually have an actual murder right. mystery. That having been said, just see the movie. That's all right. I got to say. 
see it. The period detail is excellent. I do not know if it's historically accurate. And to be honest with you, I really don't give a right. shit. Because it's just so much fun to watch. It's one of the most enjoyable movies. If you're a Pulp fan, I recommend this to you guys too. You know who I'm talking about. Music by Henry Mancini. Right. Directed by Blake Edwards. What more do I got to tell you? Sunset is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I strongly mm-hmm. suspect that after you see it, It'll be one of your favorites as well. Okay, I'm looking at this poster here that you've got up. And that doesn't say murder mystery to me. Well, see, this is what I'm saying. At that time, Bruce Willis was known for comedy. James Garner, even though he's played serious role, he's known more more for his comedies and everything. Or being like a light actor. And this is not a light movie. Yes, there are some funny moments in Mm -hmm. it. But the funny moments come out of the running gags in this movie, such as the line that they both constantly use it's all true give or take a lie or two or certain situations that they find them in but this is played as a straight Mm -hmm. murder mystery it's not a comedy at all which is the surprising thing about it I think for a lot of people who do go into it expecting and I think that's what happened back in 1980 and Blake Edwards was also known for directing a lot of comedy movies right so I think what happened that people felt they were blindsided by going in there expecting this nice little frothy light action comedy Mm -hmm. and they get this movie which has got murder and Drugs and prostitution and alcoholism mm-hmm. and incest and gunfights and fist fighting. And they say, oh my God, where's the comedy we were promised? It just ain't there. But if you are looking for a terrific murder mystery action uh, with two great actors, yeah, you can't get better than this. It's a Western also. There's a great scene at the end where they literally have to jump on their horses and ride to save Kathleen Quinlan. And you've got that terrific Henry Mancini music playing in the background and they're silhouetted against the yeah. sun. Oh, and then they got to jump in an airplane after that and fly. Yeah. It. And listen, it's just a lot of fun. It's a movie that I've watched over and over and over. I never get tired of watching. Don't you have certain movies that I don't care how you, yeah. you can watch it, and then you can restart it all over again and watch it all over again. Mm-hmm. Sunset is one of those movies for me. Highly recommend it. That, along with The Contenders, for me, those are two movies that you absolutely have to see. And going back to Tom. Okay, my last film. We're in 2005 now. Your last film? Oh, Last film for this episode. Aww. Don't worry, there'll be more is 2005's Where the Truth Lies, which is a film by a director who I don't think I've ever talked about in Better in the Dark in all the time we've done it, but a director I really do like and admire, a Canadian director by the name of Adam Egoyan. Okay, we've talked about it. Yeah, you, you and I have talked about it privately. Unlike with other films we've talked about in this set, I'm not surprised that Adam Egoyan has not been a mainstream success. He's very idiot. And I think he doesn't want to be a mainstream success. Yeah. He, the biggest hit I think he's ever had is a film called The Sweet Hereafter. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. Which actually had some Oscar buzz attached to it, so people actually went and saw it. His films are very, very somber. They tend to be very, very grim. There's usually a lot of sex involved, but it's Woo-hoo. very cold and chilly and kind of off-putting. In fact, one of his most famous films besides Sweetie Verica is actually called Erotica, which is anything but. <laughs> Where the Truth Lies is an adaptation of, uh, here's a name that we just cited recently, Rupert Holmes' novel mm-hmm. of the same name, which is about Lanny Morris and Vince Collins, who are uh, very thinly veiled Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin. Although the way that the film kind of portrays them, they kind of stretch them far away from that. Although there's obvious who they're supposed to be. Well, they got to do that in order to right. avoid the lawsuits. 
So <laughs> from the they broke up in 1957, did Lanny and Vince, and it had something to do with a dead body that was found in their hotel suite after they were ready to open this New Jersey showroom held by this mobsters in this mobsters hotel. It's 15 years later. It's 1972. Young Karen, who is a journalist, played by the absolutely stunning but very, very cold Alison Lohman. Alison Lohman is kind of like Natalie Portman in that she's very beautiful, a very Mm. gorgeous woman, but there's something about her that just is very standoffish. Yeah. Natalie Portman seems to have overcome that now. Yeah. I like her now because somewhere along the line she's finally learned how to smile. She's learned how to smile and she's learned to have fun. Yeah, apparently. Because now I actually do like her. So, she doesn't do that thing where she's smiling and but she's smiling like just it's with her teeth, but not with her eyes or anything. Yeah, else. she used to smile like it was something that she had practiced yeah. in the mirror. It wasn't genuine. So Loman wants to write, because Loman, when she was a child, idolized Morris and Collins. She suffered from polio, and they used to have a telethon for polio research. Okay, much like the Jerry And in fact, she, uh, yeah, Labor Day the telethon Labor Day and she muscular dystrophy. She actually appeared on one of those telethons to thank Vince and Milani. She wants to write the definitive biography of these two and finally get to the bottom of the mystery of how this girl from Miami showed up dead in their bathtub. So she's trying desperately to get to talk to either of them, and she ends up talking to both of them. Lanny is played by Kevin Bacon. Vince Holloway is played by Colin Firth. Now, Lanny is trying to discourage her from writing this book because he's writing his own memoirs, and we get to see dramatizations of stuff from Lanny's memoirs. But she's continuing with the investigation, actually gets to meet Vince, some terrible things happen, and we find out exactly what went down. That led to that Ominous woman, music. That led to that woman being in that hotel room. Don't, don't. I'm going to be honest here. Adam Egoyan is a acquired taste. Mm-hmm. I acquired it early. One of his first films, a film called The Adjuster, which introduced Elias Coteus to this world. I think a lot of people might be really put off by the weird combination of sexuality and, and cold weirdness. Mm-hmm. Very well acted. This is where Kevin Bacon was finally beginning to come back from being a, the cultural joke that he was for a while. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's great about him is he manages to do both Jerry Lewis 1950s and Jerry Lewis 1970s and still make you feel sympathetic for both of them. Jerry Lewis 1970s was not exactly a sympathetic human being. Mm, yeah. There's something very sad about... I'm going to be honest with you, I never was much of a Jerry Lewis right. fan, period, in the first place. His style of comedy just never appealed to mm-hmm. me. I'm sorry. I never watched any of the movies he did with Dean Martin. Although I watched, I think, The Bellboy. I watched that and I didn't get it. I do know that Jerry Lewis had made a movie that mm-hmm. supposedly is so offensive that it's never been seen. The Day the Clown Cried, have you ever yeah. heard of that? Oh, the infamous film that he has locked away in his vault. Yeah. So there are people who have seen it. Famously, Harry Shearer wrote an article for Slate Magazine back in, I think it was like 1999 or so, where he talks about being invited to see the movie. Yeah, they do say he has screenings for close friends who mm-hmm. want to see it. So there are people who have said, yeah, I've seen it. But that's supposedly the most offensive movie ever made. It's weird because I think that Kevin Bacon catches this idea that he's a person who really wants to be recognized as a good artist. There's a whole sequence where Karen kind of pretends to be her best friend because she actually runs into him. And you can bite your tongue because yep. that six degrees of Kevin Bacon thing actually does work. But I'm saying is he was a cultural joke for a while. Because I'm connected to Kevin Bacon. Go ahead. Oh, no way. Go ahead. Go ahead. Bobby Nash, right? He's an extra. Mm-hmm. He's been in TV shows and movies. But he was in The Following. You know, the Following. Yeah. And he was in a scene with Kevin Bacon. I know 
Bobby Nash. Right. <laughs> so I am separated from Kevin Bacon by Bobby Nash. So you know me. Right. So you were separated from Kevin, Kevin Bacon. Bacon. It works. He's not coming to my house anytime soon for dinner. Well, but I'm just saying that the six degrees of separation thing, it works. Egoian structures this film has a murder mystery almost. And it does work. There is some graphic sex. In fact, the film received an NC-17 initially. Really? Okay. But when Think Films agreed to distribute it, they just sent it out unrated. Because mm. there is lots of gratuitous bacon ass. That's and the scene that I am convinced is the reason me? why my entry on the block is when I first saw this film, I wrote uh, 10 statements about this. This mm-hmm. is several years ago. It has since become the most popular entry on my entire site. Really? It, far and away, is the most visited section in my site. And I'm convinced it's because I discuss and show a still from a scene where... Allison Lohman has lesbian sex with a girl dressed as Alice from Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, I could see why that would be popular, Tom. I yeah, really yeah. can't, yes. So, <laughs> it's not a film for everyone because. See, it's on your 10 statements. Yeah, look, look, it's right here. There you go. The scene where we eventually learn what actually happened is pretty damn chilling. There's a lot of great performance. Beside Bacon, who we've already cited, Firth is very good. Murray Chaikin, he's like an Adam Egoyan regular. And he's another one of these guys you probably would recognize if you saw him. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's in a lot of Canadian films. He, he is... shows up in a lot of places. Played Nero Wolf in a very memorable TV series where mm-hmm. Timothy Hutton was Archie Goodwin. Right, he plays a gangster. On the soundtrack, Kevin Bacon's explaining, I wish I could tell you that Sonny was tall and handsome and spoke with an English accent. It was a turtle prince of a guy, but that ain't what happened. (laughs) Because of the whole Martin Lewis angle, this could be a good gateway to see if you could be interested in sampling some of Egoyan's other stuff. I kind of admire him because I think that when you get into any creative endeavor, whether it be directing movies or acting in movies or writing books or Mm -hmm. singing, I think that early on you have to decide for yourself what kind of career do you want and mm-hmm. tailor yourself towards that career? Because let's face it, some people get into acting in movies not because they want to be an actor. They want to be a movie star, which is different from being a movie, at least in my eyes. Some people want to get in a certain thing because they want to be rich. Like we've talked about the people that go on these various shows, shows, these various shows like American Idol and X Factor. Well, they really don't want to be singers. What they want to do is be stars. That's what they want to right. do. But they don't want to go through the years and years of the apprenticeship that you have to do and put in your dues to get to achieve the level of, say, like a Neil Diamond or Aretha Franklin, just off the top of my head. People like that, people who put in years, putting in dough, they want to be fast-tracked. Yeah. I'm not here to make friends. Right. That kind of BS. And I say that to say this. Adam Egoyan is a director who apparently knows what he wants. He knows the stories that he wants to tell. He's not particularly interested in winning Academy Awards. It would be nice if it happened, but he knows he's not going to get rich doing this. All of Egoian stuff, there are certain obsessions that Egoian seems to have. Right, and he's working them out through his movies, in other words. And you know what? There are a lot of filmmakers who do that. There's nothing wrong with that. And if you can make a couple of dollars off the side, well, (laughs) why not? Okay, so we're back to me, right? And my yes. last movie, okay. My name my, is Mom. My last movie, I am hope that y'all guys appreciate that. I've given you a Western action adventure. Yes. I have given you a horror film. Now I'm going to give you an animated rock fantasy science fiction movie. Yes, that was a thing once. But this is a movie that has achieved a near... It's going beyond cult status. Yeah. It's achieved a legendary status. Well, it didn't help that it had... 
almost no release in America. This is a movie that bankrupted the animation studio that made it Nirvana. It's a movie that came out of a period in the 80s and here's a little bit of history. Back in the 80s we had movies like American Pop right. and Heavy Metal and this movie, which of course is 1983's Rock and Rule. These were movies that were sold not on their story, but because of their scores and the artists mm -hmm. that were participating in them and provided the music and in some cases right. the voices of the character. In the case of Rock and Rule, we have Cheap Trick, Earth, Wind and Fire, Debbie Harry, Lou mm -hmm. Reed, and Iggy Pop who did songs for this. Rock and Rule was sold as a movie featuring songs by these people. The movie received very, very limited theatrical release here in the United States mm -hmm. because the distributor, MG apparently didn't like the movie. They had it recut. They had some of the voices redubbed. The actor Paul Matt, they got him to dub the voice for the American release. And I don't know why, but I remember seeing Rock and Roll years and years yes. ago on HBO, which, as you know and I know, HBO should be given a special award for keeping a lot of movies like this alive because they needed yeah. things to fill up their programming. And they would run Rock and Roll, I think, damn near every weekend for a while there. If you watch HBO on Friday, Saturday night, you would probably see Rock and Roll as well as a bunch of other movies. What's that running joke that we used to have about the station TBS? Used to the be the Beastmaster Beast Channel. Yeah. That's what TBS stood for. Yeah, because they used to show that so many times. But they kept that movie alive. And that kept Rock and Roll alive because for the longest time, the only way you could see it was on HBO yeah. Or if you got a bootleg VHS copy at a comic book science fiction convention, where it actually had Ralph Bakshi named as the director of this movie. Which is inaccurate. It's actually Clive A. Smith. Right. But I can understand why mm -hmm. people would think this was, because if you look at the animation style, it is very much like a mm -hmm. Ralph Bakshi movie, especially in the rotoscoping technique, which, for those of you who don't know, rotoscoping is where Ralph Bakshi would actually shoot the movie with live actors, and then later on, he would have his animators simply draw mm -hmm. the characters over the frames, right. which gave you that fluid movement, and he would do this for the primary main characters of his movies. Let's get into the plot synopsis real quick before I throw out my usual rantings and ravings. There's a narration that starts this movie. I watched the Canadian version on mm -hmm. YouTube, but the American version apparently starts with a narration that explains that there was a World War III that wiped out humanity. The animals became mutated and turned into mm -hmm. humanoid versions of themselves. So you've got humanoid animals running things. The Canadian version doesn't have this. So you've got all these people running around with these funny noses, or in some cases, no noses at all. If you don't know this backstory about the Third World War, and animals mutating, you're kind of confused as to why everybody's got these weird bananas on their noses. Yeah. Now, for me, the main character in this movie is Mock, who is the last big megastar rock and roller on the planet. And he wants to go out with a bang. He wants to put on the biggest, most spectacular show that has ever been seen. And in order to do this, he's going to summon a demon. <laughs> oh, that um, trick never works. That trick never works, yeah. Thank you, Rocky. Um... <laughs> He's got this incantation called the Armageddon Key, which he disguises in a song. Mm -hmm. And he needs a special voice with the right pitch in order to open up a dimensional portal and bring this demon through the earth. Mm -hmm. He finds this voice in Angel, who is the keyboardist of this really small four-person band that's led by Omar. Omar is a dick. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. He's supposed to be our hero, but he's one of the most unlikable heroes I have ever seen in that he doesn't have a bad voice himself, right. but Angel has a great voice. So Mock Well, it's Debbie Harry's voice. Yeah, so well, yeah. yeah, it's Debbie Harry's voice. Mock hears Angel sing, and, of course, he wants her. 
So he takes her to Nuke York. Omar goes after her not because he thinks that she's in danger. Now his two sidekicks that he has, Dizzy and Stretch, they think Angel's in danger right. because of Mock. Omar doesn't think she's in danger. He's just pissed off because Mock wants to make her a star, not him. So they go there, find out what happens to Angel. There's a whole bunch of foolishness because this movie, for a movie has such a short running time, it's only 77 minutes. Mm-hmm. We spend way too much time on the bumbling sidekick. Omar has two bumbling sidekicks. Mock has three bumbling sidekicks on roller skates. Even Angel, when she escapes from Mock for a while, she picks up a bumbling sidekick. So there's really too much with these bumbling sidekicks and not enough of what we want to see of Mock who is also known as the Magic Man because right. he uses technology to make it seem like he has magical abilities. Right. Which is really... Ca- this guy is great. He's more like a Marvel comic He's super Dr. villain. Yeah. Than like a rock star. There's a great scene where he takes Angel and Omar and his two sidekicks, they're racing in a stolen police car to try to rescue her from Mark's house. And this inflatable blimp opens up and part of his mansion lifts up. And it's the control center. I said, holy <laughs> shit, this guy's Goldfinger. <laughs> He's yes. Blofeld. He's not a rock star. And they watch as he flies away. We really don't know what he planned on doing with this demon after it came to right. Earth. But what the hell? He's Mock. Thanks a lot. <laughs> My name is Mock, and that's a lot. Which is probably the best song in the whole thing, sung by Lou Reed. As yes. a matter of fact, Lou Reed and Iggy Pop, they both do the voices. Of, well, Iggy uh, Pop does the song Pain and Suffering. Yeah, Pain and Suffering. But Lou Reed gets to do My Name is Ma. You can tell. There's no oh, yeah, way uh, you, yeah. can't, you can't figure that one out. There's no way. And as a matter of fact, I haven't looked, but I'm pretty sure that if you go on YouTube, you can find just a clip of that song yeah. and that's all you want to see. But you might as well see the whole thing of rock and roll because I watched it on YouTube, the Canadian version. The whole movie is on it. Matter of fact, it was a lot better quality than I thought it was going to be. The picture was great. I don't know where it was downloaded from, but it's excellent quality. Should you see rock and roll? If you're an animation fan at all, yes, you should see rock and roll. Just for the historical value of this movie, because this is a movie that doesn't deserve the reputation I think that it's gotten. It's not that it's a bad movie. As a matter of fact, I was pretty damned entertained. And I haven't seen this movie since back in the late 80s, early 90s on HBO. And I sat and watched it, even with the foolishness with all of these stupid sidekicks doing their yeah. supposedly comedy. I found that I enjoyed the story because of the relationship between Mock and Angel and their conflict. And that she doesn't want to do it and he wants to get it. But he's not going to force her to do it. He actually seduces, well listen, I want to make you rich. I want to make you famous. I want to make you powerful. Don't you want to be rich? Yeah. Don't you want to be famous? Don't you want to be powerful? And then there is that other thing that she doesn't know if he really has magic powers enough. We get to see because we see the control center where his people are back there and, and they're saying, okay, well, cue this and cue that. And they do all of these effects that make it look like he has magic powers. I like my, I wish more had been done with him in this movie because Omar is a dick. He is. <laughs> I will admit he comes through at the end when him and Angel because Mock's computer tells him, well, there's only one thing that can beat you. And he says, well, what's that? He says, one song and one voice. And he says, I got the voice. But he takes it a little bit too literally as we find out at the end it's Angel and Omar singing together as one voice. And they're able to send the demon back to where it came from and defeat Mock. Mock says, damn, I figured too late though. (laughs) And he gets sent back to hell with the demon. But yeah, rock and roll is an entertaining animated movie. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it if you're a student of animation. Yes, it's like one of those movies that... If you say you're an animation fan, 
you really should see. Right. It is. It's a lot of fun. And yeah, the songs... For the longest time, my only exposure to this film was... Mm -hmm. And I can probably remember the name of this. WWR on Friday nights in the late 80s, I think. It was supposed to be their answer to Night Flight. Mm -hmm. The USA all-night video and goofy stuff potpourri show. There were two things that they showed a lot to such a point that me and my friend Vanessa used to joke about them. Mm -hmm. One was an Adrian Ballou video called Big Electric Cat, which was just Adrian Ballou going, Big Electric Cat, Big Electric Cat, Big Electric Cat, while a neon cat kept crawling across the screen. Big Electric Cat. Entertainment. Big Electric Cat. Entertainment like that you don't see anymore, Tom. And the other was the clip from Rock and Roll of Lou Reed singing... My name is Mock. If anybody knows anything about rock and roll, that's what they yeah. know. Because if you say rock rule, I told you all yeah. I've seen it. What's My the first thing that Mock. came? That's, and thanks a lot. That's what came out of your mouth. Matter of fact, that's the only thing I remember, to be honest. I completely forgot that Debbie Harry was in it. I completely forgot there's a nice little scene that's in the discotheque. That's where they played the Earth, Wind, and Fire yeah. song dance. I completely forgotten that. But for some reason, nobody forgets My Name is Mark. Mark yeah. That's a lot. Because <laughs> it's catchy. It is. Yeah. It's a fun little song to listen to. As done by Lou Reed. Well, luckily, apparently, this film is now readily available. Yes, there is a two-disc DVD edition of it. It was put out by a company called Unearthed Films. So I guess if you guys would rather watch it on your DVD, go to Amazon.com. Right, and there's also a Blu-ray edition. Also out yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. So, the, unlike some films that we've talked about in this area, there is ways to see this legally. Yeah, on September 28, 2010, a Blu-ray disc was released through their new distributor, Breaking Glass Picture. Yes. So, if you don't... What I would advise with you... Do, though, because you may not want to spend the bucks for that. Watch it on YouTube first mm-hmm. and decide if you like it then. And if you want to add it to your private home movie library, then go ahead and invest the bucks and make the purchase. And they are still doing films right now is Nelvana, to my surprise. I think they're primarily direct-to-video films. Yeah, they bounce back from yeah. it because they did some stuff for TV during the 90s, but this movie damn near bankrupted them. They spent all their money. They had like 300 animators that worked on this. $8 million to mm-hmm. do this movie, which back then was a lot of money to spend on an animated movie. Now, $8 million doesn't even cover the catering. Right. But back then, $8 million, especially Canadian dollars. <laughs> I'm sorry, Canada. <laughs> but that was a lot of money. And they spent, what, three, four years doing this movie because yeah. it had some of the earliest computer-generated technology Mm-hmm. that we know about in any movie. Some of it was done for this movie. It nearly put Nelvana out of business. They bounced back, but then they did mostly stuff for TV. After and, and we should point out, this is definitely a film for adults. Yes. This is not a cuddly, kitty movie. It's not. <laughs> this is a movie that you put the kid lids to bed and you watch it with your mm-hmm. sweetie. In that same period, you cited Heavy Metal, which also yeah. was very much a cartoon for us. And this would make a, the perfect double feature, mm-hmm. Rock and Roll and Heavy Metal. If you decide to get them, get them both, watch them on a Saturday night, perfect mm-hmm. double feature. This one, I don't know, story-wise, I like Heavy Metal a little bit more, mainly because, I'm sorry, I don't know, but I just have a problem. This movie just has too many bumbling sidekicks mm-hmm. that waste too much time that could have been spent on more characterization, like with Omar, why are you such a dick? He's apparently a dick because he was born that way. There could be more characterization done as to why Angel is in love with this guy who treats her like garbage. To me, there was more that could have been done with the characterization. Again, considering 
the short running time of this movie because it's only 77 minutes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'm doing a little bit of Google mining and I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for Nirvana itself. And it includes, apparently, they were developing a Doctor Who mm. animated series. And look at this. It looked like it was kind of, I guess, sort of, kind of adapted from Tom Baker's stuff, which is, makes oh. sense because it was in the 80s when they were yeah, the developing 80s, this. Was, yeah. At least Heavy Metal has got those different stories that bang, 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 mm-hmm. bang. See, I would want that outfit. <laughs> now look at the screen. It's the old Tom Mix outfit. Could I pull off that outfit? I, or what? I don't know, man. I could so pull off that outfit, man. Look at that. You look. <laughs> you can't. You can't. It's, it's the flowers at the, in the center that kind of worry me. No, that's what makes the outfit. I've got Sunset up on the Better in the Dark Jumbotron, folks, mm-hmm. and there's a scene in Sunset where Bruce Willis as Tom Mix walks into a whorehouse, and he's wearing this badass all-black outfit with a silver belt, and on the front of the shirt that he's wearing mm-hmm. is a bunch of embroidered flowers. Me, I think I could pull that shit off. Tom, however, is looking at it, and he's giving me... I don't know, He's giving man. me these of views. I digress. Going back to rock and roll. Heavy metal. And, of course, my favorite is American pop. I love American pop, mainly because of the generational story. And I think Mm -hmm. that out of those three, that's the best one. But decide for yourself. Get all three. And have yourself a rock and roll Saturday afternoon, Mm -hmm. evening marathon of American pop, heavy metal, and rock and roll. So to review, my three choices for this year was the very, very unavailable at this point. Neo Noir, starring one of your favorites, Jennifer Rubin. Delusion. Mm-hmm. The absolutely amazing simulated reality TV show gone horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. Series 7, The Contenders. And the Adam Goyen metaphysical exploration come murder mystery about Lewis and Martin, only not really, where the truth lies. This go-around, my three, we have the horror movie, The Crimson Cult, also known as The Curse of the Crimson Altar. But again, looking for it on Netflix, look for it under the title of The Crimson Cult, which stars Christopher Lee as the owner of a old house where Guy's brother is mysteriously vanished, and mm-hmm. it's obvious he knows a little bit more about it. And the other horror icon, Boris Karloff, going around in his wheelchair being an expert about Being very Boris Karloff. Well, he pretty is. He's going around doing and saying all the things we'd like to see Boris Karloff doing. Also, we have the great Barbara Steele. Painted green. Painted green. Naked women. Whipping other naked women. women. Christopher Lee. Barbara Steele. <laughs> Michael Gow. Yeah. Alfred from the Batman movie. Boris Karloff. Naked women whipping other naked women. Need I say any more? Also, I reviewed Sunset, the action adventure starring Bruce Willis as legendary cowboy star of the 1920s Tom Mix and James Garner as equally legendary Wild West lawman Wyatt Earp who come together and have to join forces to solve a murder mystery in 1929 Hollywood. And I wrapped it up with the animated, the legendary rock and roll, fantasy, sci-fi, musical rock and roll. Which My name is Mark. Thanks Thanks a lot. lot. Which features the vocal talents and songs by Cheap Trick, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Debbie Harry, 
Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. So that's it for this year. That's a good mix. So yeah, yeah it's exactly because I don't think there's a duplication on any of these things. Yeah. We have a different genre for each one of these sets. Yeah, which I think that you folks out there really mm. like when we can mix it up. Things that the, the only thing that we didn't have was comedy. Well, I'll try to think of something for next year. Before I got fixated on delusion, I almost decided to do the rundown because that people have asked us to talk about. Yeah, maybe we'll do all comedy. Yeah, obscure episodes. Okay. Yeah. So. We're going to go into in a few minutes. We've now pre-recorded how you can contact us thing. Okay. We should mention that tonight's episode, one of our most sought-after episodes, is brought to you by Matthew Laub and Stuart Morgan. And if you want to be a producer for an upcoming episode, just listen to the pre-recorded stuff that follows us doing our plugs for our writerly endeavors. Although I've got some non-writerly endeavors I want to plug as well. What do you want to plug? No, no, no. Well, first off, we should mention, of course, that this is 2013, and this is the year of Dylan. I ain't plugging nothing. What do you mean you're not plugging nothing? I ain't pl- I'm tired of You just... Stuff. Okay, you just put the finishing touches... On the Vril Agenda, the first Dylan crossover novel where Dylan and Jim Anthony meet. Right. Joshua Reynolds, as we're recording this right this second, is editing this book. Yes, he is. And it's going to be out soon, a joint production from Pulpworks Press and Airship 27. Correct the window. That's a big thing that you should be plugging. Well, I didn't have to because you just did. Okay. (laughs) There you go. I got you to do it for me. (laughs) Why you... My name is Derek, and that's a lot. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't have the same standard. It doesn't have the same thing. But, yeah, but it's the yeah, same. But see, but nothing, but rhymes, you with nothing yes. rhymes with Derek. That's right. It's like orange. Nothing yeah. really rhymes with orange. So, first place, of course, the three places we want to talk to you about is, of course, Pulpworks Press, the home of Dylan. Mm-hmm. Dylan is getting himself a whole new trade dress. You've been starting to tease that. Yes. People have seen, but nobody's seen the cover yet. I've shown yeah. you the cover. Yes, you have. But nobody else has seen it yet. I'm keeping that under wraps for a lot of good reasons that will be clearer when folks finally see it. But for right now, I'm keeping it under wraps. But yes, the Vril Agenda, which I've been talking about for months, I have finally finished my part of it and the whole thing now, all 56,000 words of it. Right. And now it's in the hands of Josh Reynolds, who is editing it, and he's going to be doing that this week. So it should be in the hands of Ron Fortier of Airship 27 by this time next week. So I don't know after that when you're going to see it, folks, but I think I'm safe in saying that, yeah, you're going to be seeing it in 2013. I've started working on something for Pulp Express for this year. You have started working on something? I, it's already started working, yeah, because... Oh, yeah, the Christmas. The Christmas story, yes. Yeah. People who like the first Doc Thunder story and How the West Was Weird, Volume yeah. 2, will be pleased to know that Doc... Is coming back. Okay. He's going to be coming back in a special story called The Town That Hated Santa Claus for the 2013 Pulpworks Press Christmas Annual. So there's that to look forward to. And I'm assuming it's going to be from, in December, it'll be, be available for free. Yeah, usually what happens is that Joe usually mm-hmm. has it as a giveaway like during the month of December. Right. And after that, because I think that the one we did for last year. You can still get it. Yeah, which features the excellent Dylan story, which is a... Dylan and the Night Before Christmas. Yes, which is a take on a very familiar Christmas classic. Well, it's a mashup between It's a Wonderful Life and A Christmas Carol. Yeah. Pretty much is what it is. Along with stories from the Dire Planet. Yeah, Joe's got a story in it. Joshua Reynolds has yeah. got a story in it. Russ Anderson has, has a, a story very insane in it. story. And yeah, and, and I'm being very honest here. I'm not trying to bullshit you. Anything. If you get this thing, and it's only 99 cents, it's available only as an ebook. Yeah. If you don't get it for anything else, get it for Russ's story. It's... I am dead serious here, folks. 
I can't say no pointer than that. Get it for Russ's story. Everything else in that, my story, Josh's story, Joe, is gravy mm-hmm. after that. Yeah. But Russ's story, yeah. It's a story just like I was saying a little while ago that Sunset was a movie that I could watch yeah. and then I can put it right back to the game and watch again. First time I read Russ's story, I read it, I got to the end, I started it all over again. That's how much I liked it. It's a great story. Plus, oh. there is something that might be coming up. Because I know that Russ, in an episode they haven't heard yet, said that maybe if you wrote something, Tom, maybe I'll be prompted to do volume three of How the West Was Weird. I may have something. Okay. With my other Wild Western series character. Okay. I've already got my... Although I know Russ really likes Doc Thunder. I've already yeah. got my Christmas story in mind, too. It's okay. It's very so, simple. Yeah. It's going to be Dylan versus Krampus. So, you know exactly what my story yeah. is, so it's going to be an interesting annual. Also, check out Pro Se Press, Tommy Hancock's little corner of the new pulp world, where, of course, Fortune McCall plies his trade off the coast of Sovereign City. I have no idea when that's going to be done, folks, so stop asking me. <laughs> No, seriously, I get at least about one or two emails a week saying, well, when are you going to do another Fortune McCall? I, but you know what? Now that I can say that, now that I've yeah. got time freed up. Cause now that the real agenda is yeah, off your thing. Because I promised myself I was not going to do anything else. As a matter right. of fact, I turned down two other projects that people mm-hmm. asked me to do. I said, no, I cannot. i got to finish this. Right. That's why Dow Jones is going a little slow. Because I want to get the second Shadow Legion book. Right. It's almost over halfway done. One story is in the can. Mm-hmm. Another story is over halfway finished. And, but yeah, Dow Jones is also coming as well from there, as well as a lot of other great things like the Yesteryear, which is a great novel Tommy wrote. Yeah. More of Lee Houston Jr.'s Project Alpha. Mm-hmm. He's going to have a seat to that. Yeah, that's coming as well. And also, of course, we should always salute. Yep. Salute. The great Ron Fortier of Airship 27. We have an artist. The artist is working right now. On the interior illustrations for Shadow Legion, New Roads to Hell, which means it's actually going to be out real soon, people. Yeah. All you got to do is just keep on looking on Tom's Facebook page. Uh, yeah, Lord knows. I Airship keep... 27's Facebook page. You should keep following those, and you will know when it'll be available. It'll be here sooner than you think. Mm-hmm. And probably soon after that will come the Shadow Legion Casebook, Volume 1. There you go. Among other things that are in the works, which I will not go into, for those of you who are interested in podcasting. Who's, who is it? Obviously you are, because you're listening to this. interesting in podcasting? I've showed up a couple of places. Yeah. As, as of this recording, the first of two episodes I recorded with the great Sean Engel mm-hmm. and my good, good, good friend Michael Bailey mm-hmm. of Just One of the Guys, the Guy Gardner slash Kyle Rayner podcast went live, which features our discussion of Emerald Twilight and the first, uh, among other things, talk about boobage, because there's a lot of boobs in that book. Woohoo! It's very 90s. It's a very 90s Green Lantern podcast. There's nothing wrong with boobage. Also, I've been invited back on the Love That Album podcast oh, okay. with Morris Brzezinski. We're going to be covering Amy Mann's Bachelor Number 2. Let me ask you something. Yeah, sure. What's the development on that other podcast you were going to do for Tricycle Effect? You're just getting to that because oh, tomorrow. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Tomorrow, we're going to be recording the pilot for Moves oh. Like Curtis, the podcast. Oh, congratulations. We're going to aim to record three episodes. One with Kalen, where we talk about the Raiders and what the Raiders need to do to get better for the 2013 season. One with Zach by himself, our good friend. He almost says Zach, Zach Joyner, yes. 
our good friend Zach Joyner, who was on the 100th episode, and we hope to get on the 150th episode. And we're going to talk to Zach about the Cowboys, okay. his favorite team, and what they need to do to get better in 2013. Okay. Third episode will hopefully be the, all three of us sitting together examining the various coaching changes that have happened in the league. Which ones are going to work, which ones aren't going to work, and the like such. What I've been trying to do is put together a group of 32 people that I've been referred to as the Sonata 32. A super fan for each of the 32 football teams in the NFL. So that every week, if, say, something happens in the news about the Vikings, something important to the Minnesota Vikings, I call up my Minnesota Vikings fan. He comes now, on the show. Um, now, see, this is what I wanted to ask yeah. you. Yeah. So you know 32 people for each one of these I'm teams? I'm working on it. I uh, haven't gotten uh, everybody yet. Okay. Just, yeah. I'm trying to get to something. Mm-hmm. So what if somebody, say, was a fan of, just take a team out there, because yeah. you know me, I don't know yeah. anything about football teams. If somebody was a fan of, say, the Dolphins, could they approach you? Yes. Independently they and should say, listen. contact me. To, on, oh, okay. We'll see. Either through Tricycle Offense or through Facebook and say, yes, I'm a Dolphins fan. I want to be part of Oh, okay. See, this is what I'm saying because, I mean, I know you know 32 people. Yeah, of course. But 32 people, one for each team... I said, wow. Who do that, I got? Let me see. Let's right. See. So I'm saying, w- would you be open? Right now, we have representatives for, obviously, the Raiders, obviously, the Jets, mm-hmm. obviously, the Cowboys, and also for the Seahawks, the Steelers, the Browns, the Falcons. I think I just got somebody for the Carolina Panthers. Okay. And I think Will wants to do the Green Bay Packers with me. So I've got representatives for nine teams. I still need representatives for the other teams. I was surprised there are at least two people that I know who are fanatical fans of the team from New England. I'm surprised neither of them stepped forward, particularly Dave Swig, because Dave Swig is always teasing me about my love of the Jets. Now, speaking of football, and then yes. we're going to wrap this up because this is getting a little bit long, but I had to ask you this. Yes. Why should I care about, what's his name, Matty T.O.? <laughs> this this numb nuts being a moron and falling for <laughs> such a but wait a minute honestly why should I care about what to any rational sane person would say this was just a practical joke that yeah. got out of hand why should I care about this I don't know I just think it's a, as a football fan why do you care about it? the only thing I can think of that is going to affect us about this okay is that it's probably going to affect his draft status. Okay. Because... Because he's an idiot. Well, because he's an idiot, and because he's such a huge (laughs) idiot. And the thing is, is that Matty Teow was a remarkable defensive lineman. Right. And he was projected to be among the first ten people drafted when he decided to come out into the draft. Now, people are going to look at him and think, well, this guy's got some issues. (laughs) This guy is either the most gullible human being in the world. Set him up for yeah. a stupid little prank, and apparently the prank got out of hand. It got way out of yeah. hand. Yeah. Okay, well, the guy's an idiot, so... But the know. thing is, there, there are certain teams in the league that are interested in quality players. Right. People of character. Then again, there are teams like the Jets and the Bengals. They're referred to sometimes as jailhouse teams, because they'll take problem kids, because right. they figure they can get the best out of them. Well, yeah. And, and to an extent, it has worked in the times of the Jets, because you have people like Antonio Cromartie. Mm-hmm. and Santonio Holmes and Braylon Edwards, who are problem children everywhere else. Braylon Edwards is an incompetent in every other team that he has worked with. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, whenever he puts on the green and white, he's a great player. And we have no idea why. 
And I think the thing is, they're going to take into account the fact that he's a dumbass when they consider <laughs> drafting or not. And I have a feeling that he's gone from being a first-round draft choice to maybe a fourth or fifth round. And there's a lot of money difference between being a first-round draft choice and a fourth or fifth-round draft choice. Well, thank but you personally, I don't know why <clears throat> we have to have heard three weeks of Matty Tao. Yeah. One day, yes. Two days, maybe. But after the third day, come on, give mm-hmm. me a break already. Yeah. So we're going to segue into the pre-recorded segment where we talk about how you can contact us and right. our blogs and all that and how you can give us money. Until next time, when you're going to a bed and breakfast, which is run by a green naked lady who is a fan of Tom Mix and wants to put him into a reality show where they shoot Martin and Lewis impersonators. Very good. In an animated backdrop. Okay, you're getting better. Wait for it. Go see, see that, that movie. movie. <laughs> there was one I think I forgot. <laughs> go go to the movie. Go see the movie. Go. Just go see the movie. <laughs> Thank Good you. So you want to let us know how much you like Better in the Dark, huh? And you do like us, right? Here's what you do. Email us at betterinthedark at earth2.net. That's betterinthedark at earth-2.net. You can join the Better in the Dark Facebook page by searching for Better in the Dark on Facebook and asking to join. You can follow both Derek and myself and our individual Facebook pages to learn all about the facts to need to know about the both of us. And you can read the Ferguson Theater and Damn Your Ears, Damn Your Eyes, You Want More Filmic Musings. You know what else will prove you love us? Send us money. <laughs> Send checks, money order, filthy lucre. Or cash, we accept cash. Box to Myrtle Sporting Goods. Shekels. Care of Thomas DJ. Dollars. 5716 Myrtle Avenue, Ridgewood, New York, 11385. The Blooms. Make all checks payable to Derek Ferguson and make all money orders payable to Thomas DJ. Cash, it comes in green, it goes with everything. Or you can contribute by the PayPal link we have at betterinthedarksite.com. One click, and then you're done, and you can give us money there. There you go. If you send us a contribution, you'll be named a producer on an upcoming episode. And the best part of it, no minimum whatsoever. No minimum, no maximum. Send whatever you like. So come on, stand up, get involved. Be counted. Share your love. And don't forget to go go watch that movie. Sick. Try to realize there is no longer black or white, good or evil. We've evolved beyond that. But Uncle Mikey says we should know the difference. We all must have our own personal view of right and wrong. But, but, But is what we are doing evil? Of course not. Remember, Zip, evil spelled backwards is live. And we all want to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to Sean Engel of Just One of the Guys, Morris of Love That Album, the Leylands of Hey Kids Comics, Eric Frome, and of course, all the lovely members of the Better in the Dark Facebook page. Better in the Dark aspired to be this generation's Martin and Lewis, but somehow, they ended up being much more this generation's Mitchell and Petrillo. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, love letters, and pipe bombs to Better in the Dark at Earth2.net. That's Better in the Dark at Earth-2.net. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley, and why not leave a review of us on iTunes? Hey, 
Maybe you can even visit the Better in the Dark Central site at www.betterinthedarksite.com. And don't forget to check out all the amazing music available from our own music director, B-Hyphen, at www.b-hyphen.com. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation in association with the Earth2.net community of podcasts. All material copyright, Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that you may be mocked, and thanks a lot for reminding us about that, but you still can't save us from Big Electric Cat. Big Electric Cat. Big Electric Cat. Big Electric Cat. I am the killer. I am the source. And you will worship me, of course. I'm the oracle. I'm the sin, the wit. There is no question that I am it. Hey, girl. What, do you want to waste them here? Yeah, yeah, right. This would be nice. Yeah, I got a lake out front. I got a locker in the back.